Good morning. I am Tammy. I am the kids minister here at Southwest. I lead Kidbin. It is short for kids ministry, if you ever wondered. And we are making plans to start opening up our preschool and our nursery rooms. And to do that, we are going to need some new volunteers. A lot of our volunteers that volunteered in the past just aren't able to right now. So we're asking for new people to step up to serve families with young kids. Normally, we ask those who love serving kids, loving being with kids to serve for us. But in this season, we're asking for those who love and serve God to step up and bridge that gap. Author Bob Goff encourages Jesus followers that if you want to do something awesome for God, do something for his kids. And I will say that I have found when I'm with the kids, I learn more about who God is and his word than I do anywhere else. Matthew 19, 14 through 15 says, Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Don't keep them away. The kingdom of heaven belongs to people like them. Recently, I heard Kidman defined as reaching a generation before they need rescued. Would you be willing to help us reach this generation? If you are interested in learning more, we have a meeting just for information this Wednesday. It's at 7. You can do it in person here in the building, or I will um, have a Zoom link out all over um, our social media and um, website. So let's lean in now as Andrew leads us in our first message in this series. Well, hi, all. How are you? Still cold? We're all right? So if I say or use the word miracle, what immediately comes to your mind? Maybe a past experience that you've had, thinking, oh, I've, had, I've experienced a miracle before. I've seen one. Maybe you think of uh, angels, you know, guardian angels, maybe in the spiritual realm, kind of working behind the scenes for our benefit or our protection. Maybe uh, just a sense of wonder comes over you because you are a big believer in miracles. You might even believe in miracles, but you're sitting there thinking, even though I believe, I've never experienced one and I would love to one day. Or maybe you're on the side of, you hear about miracles and people talking about those and you might cross your arms, you might scoff a little bit just thinking miracles are something else. They can be explained away by any number of things. You might even be old enough to think of a hockey game. Anyone that old when you think of a miracle? A few of us, yeah, exactly right. Well, we read about miracles and signs in the Gospels, even in the Old Testament, but also uh, many would argue that we have miracles today. Many of you would argue for that uh, yourselves. Today we have miracles like uh, the medical kind of miracles. You know, many of us have stories, you might even yourself have this experience, where the doctor found something very concerning, maybe even a growth or a fill-in-the-blank, and come time for the biopsy, or even come time when someone's on the operating table, this huge thing that was about to eat up your body is no longer there, just disappeared out of nowhere. I've prayed over a number of people where that's happened. That may have happened to you. There are medical miracles that we might know of. Uh, There might be a category we'll just call salvation miracles. Now, I'm really close to calling every single salvation a miracle just because knowing what it takes to change the human heart and how only God could do that. 
But you may have known someone, you might even be this person who was so far from God, you thought of their background, their personality, what they were into, and you said, there is no way that the gospel will ever penetrate fill-in-the-blank's heart. And guess what? One day it did. And that person might be more in love with Jesus than you are now. There are salvation miracles. There are miracles in the natural world, miracles of any and all kinds. And that's kind of the direction that we're going to be taking over the next several weeks. Now, when I use the word miracle, when we're kind of prepping for messages and prepping for a series, we like to, uh, I don't know, go to the dictionary or see what the internet has to say or how they define these things. And there are so many definitions of miracles. And looking at least the ones I read, they're all correct. But also most of them, they sound very scientific or they sounded like they certainly were right out of a dictionary or they're very wooden and rigid. And in my mind, a miracle is supposed to elicit some wonder and some amazement, a sense of marvel. So uh, here's a definition or a quote about miracles that I found uh, that I like, and I think it will serve us well for the whole series. Here's what a miracle is. A miracle is a power beyond the ordinary, a sign beyond our world, and a wonder beyond our imagination. That's what I'd like to under, for all of us to understand a miracle to be for our Sunday mornings going forward. Now, specifically, uh, the Gospels, they are just full of miracles, especially Mark's Gospel. But we're going to be in the Gospel of John. And what we're going to do each week is we're going to be going over covering one of the seven miracles that John records in his Gospel. So there are just seven of them. And these include uh, you know, a blind man being able to see, or a guy who hasn't been able to walk after decades and decades, maybe even birth. I can't remember it right now. Um, but... Jesus healing him and him being able to walk for the first time, maybe in his life. At the end of the series, there's even going to be a resurrection story, and it's not of the resurrection of Jesus, but of someone else. We're just going to look at seven of these. Now, when we talk about miracles, or when I use that word miracles, and something comes to your mind, uh, many of us, if you're like me, are skeptical. Even though I have a lot of faith, I have a lot of skepticism. You might be in the same boat as, as I am. But many of us are skeptical, but also many of us are quick to see miracles and accept them, no problem at all. We probably have the entire spectrum covered really, really well in this room alone. So just as a, uh, an interactive piece, some of you take our poll, uh, just by the way, if you haven't downloaded our app, uh, 360 other people have and are using it and are enjoying it, and one of those is we just kind of give a do this uh, back and forth through the poll. So if you're one of our poll takers, uh, it's waiting there for you now. It's just the question, how do you feel about miracles? And you'll find some of the options in there. We'd like to see kind of the lay of the spiritual land when it comes to miracles at Southwest. But outside of that, whenever we talk about miracles or we read about them or you hear about them or even experience one, uh, Two questions typically come to mind, even if you can't verbalize them in this way. One, if a miracle occurs, especially if we just hear about it, question number one is, did that really happen? Is what they're saying was a miracle, was it really a miracle? Or is it easily explained as something else? That's a question that comes to many of our minds. And the second one is this, outside of did it really happen, what does it mean? Why did God bring about that miracle? Why did that healing happen? Why did that circumstance unfold the way it did? What's the point behind all of this? Well, this series is going to handle one question more than the other. We might get a little bit into the do miracles really happen side of things, 
But the main thrust, the main point, direction of this series is, what do they even mean? When a miracle happens, what's that pointing to? What's the point? Why did this happen to begin with? So if you read the Gospels, in the original Greek, the word for miracles is dynamos, which sounds like what English word for us? Sounds like dynamite. I know Rogers brought that up uh, in, in messages prior, even maybe even in the last several weeks. But it's where we get our word dynamite. It just means a work of power. So when you read that word miracle, it just means a work of power has gone on, has just occurred. But here's something really interesting. I did not know this until just this last week. But even though there are at least seven miracles in John's gospel, in the original language that John was writing in, he did not use the word miracle. It doesn't appear at all in John's gospel, in the original language anyway. What John does use is the word for sign. It's pronounced simeon. And here's what John considers a miracle, even though he doesn't use that word. He uses sign. Here's what he means. Something that points to a greater spiritual reality. Yes, there are seven miracles, but that's not the angle that John wants to take. He's saying, yes, this happened, and it's great that this happened, but what's this really pointing to? What's the greater spiritual reality that we're supposed to get out of this? And that's exactly why we're calling this series Signs and Not Miracles. We'll get into more depth on this here in a few minutes, but when it comes to the idea of miracles, we can get so enamored, so interested, even obsessed with certain miracles, or did they happen, do they not, how can they be explained, what's the point of them? We can get so obsessed and enamored with miracles and miracle stories that we completely miss the bigger picture of why they happened in the first place. A Bible study tip for you, Old or New Testament, whenever a miracle or sign appears on the page, that miracle is never the point. That miracle is pointing to the point. So you may have noticed we got some things on stage here. We have signs on stage, and when we read these, we typically know what these mean, right? Over here at the top, we have watch for pedestrians on the roadway. It might be people walking around. Don't hit them, please. We got a traffic one way uh, going on here. We have yield right here, which we all know means speed up. And then over here, we have a... Did I not get a laugh? <laughs> that was too quick. Uh, we have over here channel closed, portage ahead. I didn't know what that meant until recently, very recently, like 45 minutes ago recently. It's a boat sign. Now we know. Stop sign. All these signs tell us to do something and point to the reality, to be aware of something going around us. Outside of examples on the stage, uh, when you step on the scale, which we all love, there's a number at the bottom, right? It's usually, not always, but usually a number we don't like. It's not about the number on the scale. That number on the scale is pointing you to a reality about something. Usually, not always, it's, oh, I need to lose a few pounds. Sometimes for the lucky few, it might be, oh, I need to gain weight. Our student minister, Nathan Mitchell, has that problem. He wants to gain weight. That number, it's not about the number. It's pointing to a reality that you should react to. Last hour, this happened to me. Uh, at 9-11, every Sunday morning, even when I'm preaching and forgot to turn uh, the silence on my phone, I get a notification that lets me know, here's how much time I spent on my phone over the last week. And you know what? I, every week I look at the report, and every single week I am disappointed in myself. The number itself doesn't matter, but it points to the reality of how I live my life in certain ways, right? Then we have literal signs. Uh, we might have some travelers in the room. I've been to a few places uh, in some famous signs. Pike Place Market there in Seattle. Who's been there? Show of hands. If I'm not mistaken, I think I once read this is one of the most photographed signs in the entire world. It's a famous place. And that sign tells you, you're here, here's all there is to experience. 
About a week and a half ago, I was out in Las Vegas uh, for a ministry training, believe it or not, and we have this very, very famous sign, and that sign tells you, you know what, actually pick your own adjective when it comes to Las Vegas, that's what it's telling you there. And some of us might be excited about uh, this sign here, Platform 9 and 3 quarters. Has anyone been to Platform 9 and 3 quarters? A couple here, a couple here, yeah, very cool. Some of you have no idea what that is, and that's okay. But it's pointing to something beyond itself, something magical in this case. But that is the nature of signs. So what I want to do, since it's a, maybe a slightly longer series than we normally do, for the next several minutes, what I want to do is just kind of lay a solid foundation for miracles and signs, uh, what they are, what they aren't, uh, the healthy side, the unhealthy side, and just kind of laying a good direction for how do we best understand this so we can then best receive what each miracle story might have to say about a greater spiritual truth or reality going on that we might not see on first glance. So miracles themselves, they are astounding, they are wondrous, but we can misunderstand them, or we have an unhealthy or even a skewed view of what they are can be. Now, we are allowed to be interested in miracles. Hopefully you are. I think they are unbelievably interesting uh, for a few reasons. One, Christianity itself is supernatural, right? The act of following Jesus means that, uh, honestly, some of what we practice, just the idea that there is a real God somewhere who interacts with us on a daily basis and is working for our good, science can't explain that. Just immediately, following Jesus is a supernatural lifestyle. You're kind of adding that part of our belief is that the Holy Spirit, at least for believers, is with us, is helping us out, and also changing our hearts over the long haul. That's a reason, again, why I believe, or I'm close to believe, that every single salvation is a miracle. The Holy Spirit has to do his work in our hearts sometimes in order to even get us to a place to receive the gospel, that we can believe and trust in that at all. Something else, a good side of miracles, is honestly, miracles can be partially, maybe wholly, but at least partially responsible for helping us to believe in Jesus to begin with. That's one of the reasons that John wrote his gospel at all. These are the last couple of verses of John there in chapter 20, the very last one. It says, The disciples saw Jesus do many miraculous signs in addition to the ones recorded in this book. So Jesus did more signs than even John records. But these are written so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in him, you will have life by the power of his name. So right there it says, hey, part of miracles... It's one, to help us believe, but two, to help us keep believing that we would have a powerful life in the name of Jesus. It just says right there, there's a place for miracles. Just something else, a truth about miracles, one-third of Christ's ministry was just doing miracles. If you read the 16 chapters of Mark, it's our shortest gospel, but it is action-packed. Jesus does the least amount of talking and the most amount of performing miracles and just doing good stuff around town in Mark's gospel. A full third is miracles. It's like... How does Jesus have even time to catch his breath? It's just go, go, go in that gospel. And something else about miracles, in 1 Chronicles it says this, and James echoes that in his letter, says, every good and perfect thing comes from God himself. And we know a genuine miracle comes from God, that being good and perfect things. So miracles, it's good to be interested in them, even be on the lookout for them. They are good and perfect things. However, there can be a risky or even unhealthy interest in miracles. There's kind of two sides of this coins. One thing is miracles can actually get in the way of our faith. This happens in John. In a few weeks, we're going to cover the feeding of the 5,000. This was Jesus' response to some of the people there from John 6. Jesus replied, 
I tell you the truth, you want to be with me because I fed you, not because you understood the miraculous signs. But don't be so concerned about perishable things like food. Spend your energy seeking the eternal life that the Son of Man can give you, for God the Father has given me the seal of his approval. I don't, hopefully I'm not giving too much away in Roger's sermon in a few weeks, but hey, we'll all forget by then anyway that I said this. But in this case, all these men who experienced this supernatural act of just being fed with bread and fish and fed to the full, they missed the point entirely. Jesus says, you just want to be with me because I fed you. You didn't understand this sign I did at all. They were so focused on this cool thing, and it was cool, this cool thing that Jesus did that they completely missed the point that there is a spiritual truth to get out of things like this. Sometimes people can be so focused on receiving or seeing a miracle that they miss Jesus altogether. Jesus knew this very well. In fact, oftentimes, Jesus got exasperated or even frustrated when this happened. Jesus said this. It doesn't really always sound like the Jesus we preach and know, but this is what Jesus says. Only an evil, adulterous generation would demand a miraculous sign. That sounds pretty harsh. So it sounds like in the heart of Jesus that there is a time and place for miracles. And there's also a time where they're not helpful at all. You might know someone, you may have even been someone at one point, you, I've heard people say this, if I just experienced a miracle myself, then I would believe in God. Well, that happens in Scripture here in just a couple of verses. Yeah, John 12, 37, I'm moving ahead a little bit for, the, for Jim in the back. But even here in John 7, it says, Despite all the miraculous signs Jesus had done, most of the people still did not believe in him. So even just experience or seeing a miracle yourself, it looks like, is not always a guarantee for faith. So it sounds like faith is more important than the miracle here. Kind of going back, sorry, Jim, about Mark 6. It says, Because of their unbelief, he couldn't do any miracles among them except to place his hand on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their unbelief. Even though it should engender a sense of wonder and awe, some people might see and experience a miracle and just kind of shrug it off. Eh, whatever. But hey, when Jesus does do miracles, and he does often, I would argue even today, there's actually a few reasons he does this. You know, every single miracle doesn't have the same purpose. You know, even the ones that we don't understand, I don't think there's one job for miracles to do. I think, you know, depending on how they happen, the circumstances, they each have, you know, different purposes. Here's a few. Not all, but here's a few. At least when we read about a miracle in the gospel, one is Jesus performs miracles just to prove he is who he says he is. This happens in Mark chapter 2. Um, a story we often read about, even preach from the stage around here, is the story of Jesus preaching in probably Peter's house. And then, you know, the ceiling starts to cave in and looks up and there's four guys. They're bringing his buddy down, their buddy down on a mat. Can't walk, they want Jesus to heal him. It was a huge moment, a faith moment. So, Jesus decides to heal this guy. Mark chapter 2, verse 10, he says, I'm going to do this so I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Here's a Bible study tip, at least when it comes to the Gospels. Some of us, we just don't feel like we're good at reading. Like we read, and we're like, I don't know what to get out of that. Why is that in there? Here's a tip. Oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes, the reason for this story being included 
in a gospel, it says so right there, sometimes in the line, a line of dialogue from Jesus. Other times it's kind of at the very end before it gets a new heading. But right here, Jesus says, hey, I'm going to prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. That was the purpose, primary purpose, of that miracle. Now, a secondary one was that a guy was healed. But the primary one, Jesus says, here's why I did it. Here's another reason why a miracle might occur. To put a spotlight on the reality that the kingdom of God has arrived, and it's here among us. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is going around town uh, casting demons out of people. And some of the religious experts around, they had a problem with that for some reason. I don't know why. But Jesus says this, But if I am casting out demons by the Spirit of God, and he was, then the kingdom of God has arrived among you. So Jesus is saying, hey, here's a sign that the kingdom is real and the kingdom is here. I, the Son of Man, am casting out demons. Just one sign of many. So sometimes just to point to, hey, the kingdom is in and among us. And I think that holds true for miracles that happen today, that the kingdom is here. Another easy one we read about from Mark chapter 1 says, Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. That evening after sunset, many sick and demon-possessed people were brought to Jesus. The whole town gathered at the door to watch. In this case, honestly, the purpose of miracles is that Jesus just has compassion on people. Sometimes that's the only purpose behind a miracle. It's a really good reason, but sometimes Jesus just wants to show compassion, just a glimpse into the heart of Jesus himself. Sometimes uh, a miracle, especially today, sometimes it's to reward faithfulness. Now, that's not to say the most faithful among us are going to receive a miracle. But even in Scripture, just faithfulness, you get a, a miracle as a reward. And then a final reason, again, there are so many reasons out there, but a final one that we'll get from this series is miracles happen to reveal the glory of God. In fact, that's kind of the point behind today's text, the first miracle, recorded miracle in John. Today is the miracle of Jesus turning the water into wine. Now, uh, it's a brand new series, and uh, we've done this a few times, uh, the whole uh, being delivered a bag with goodies inside. Uh, throw up a hand if you received one of these. Most, not all, I know we have extras uh, out in the lobby. Uh, we skipped a series. We didn't do one of these for the Rhythms of Grace series, but we did for this series, one, because it's, such a, it's a longer one, and especially since it's leading to Easter, uh, this series we want to carry just a little bit more of weight. But just so you know, this was the largest kind of... Uh, expansive deliveries we did. We had 30 plus volunteers and uh, delivered to about 240 homes. So if you helped us with that, thank you so much. And hopefully people will be blessed by this. But in this bag are seven items. Each I'm going to kind of tie into whatever the sermon or text of the morning is. And today it's just a bottle of water. And here it is. Just natural spring water. Actually, it sounds good. I could use some water right now. I ran out with my seat. Hold on. Didn't that work out? <clears throat> But today's text, today's miracle, is Jesus turning the water into wine. Now, part of me wants to see if I can turn water into wine myself. We might. I might try. Because what do I got to lose, right? Uh, if you're a Bible reader, either on your phone or you have the hard copy, it'll be on the screen for us, but I'm just going to read this story straight through, and then we'll pull out some really important things for us to know, understand, and really get our minds around. But here it is, chapter 2, verse 1 of John. The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. 
The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother told him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Standing nearby were six stone water jars used for the Jewish ceremonial washing. Each of them could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. And when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. He says, a host always serves the best wine first, he said. Then when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum for a few days with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Wine! No, all right. Maybe next time. Something about the first century in this culture Not unlike our culture, weddings were a very, very, very big deal. They were a big deal to us, but just to kind of communicate, typically we're invited to a wedding uh, that we go to. There's the, you know, we arrive, there's a ceremony, some cocktail hour where they get their photos, they come back, reception, we dance, we go home, right? That's how weddings go, for the most part, in our country. Weddings back then, they celebrated for a full week. So that just kind of communicates the priority they have on this marriage covenant that they have people coming together. Well, here's what happens with this particular wedding. It would have been unthinkable. This would have been a horror show if people had found out. But this wedding runs out of wine. The party essentially stops. Now, something about wine, many of us are fans of wine here. I think it's nasty. Whenever I try wine, I make that, like, give a baby a lemon face. I can't stand it. But it's a popular drink. And in the first century, this was the table drink of choice. Just like we have water waiting for us or given us first at a restaurant when we go out, uh, wine would have been the case back in the first century. So it would have been a watered-down version of the wine that we have today. So this was a major need. So the idea of running out of wine in a culture like this, it would have been extremely embarrassing and it would have been extremely shameful. Now here's kind of like a, an expanse we have to cross. Uh, we don't necessarily, we don't really li- live in a, an honor-shame culture. The first century they did. And what that means is as you and your family lived your lives, especially in the public eye, everything you did, your actions, your reputations, the word you used was either going to bring honor on your family or was going to bring shame on your family. And one thing we do have, uh, in some ways it might feel like, uh, like for us adults, like does it sometimes feel that Even though we graduated high school, high school didn't go away. Like there's still like this almost social hierarchy that's unspoken as we go around. That would have been very much the case even more so in the first century. So you walked around with how much honor or shame that you had with your family. And during the the practice of the day was get rid of shame and bring more honor. That's the reality they were in. So running out of wine, the necessity for this wedding celebration would have been deeply, deeply shameful. On the most important day of their lives, by the way. This would have been on the bride and the groom. Well, kind of reading between the lines and doing some background work, uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, was likely on the wedding planning committee. I don't think that they would have had just any one wedding planner like we do today. 
Uh, but it was a smallish town, so it's likely that Mary may have been related to either the bride or the groom in some way, maybe a cousin, maybe a distant relative like that. But she knows kind of what's going on on the inside. So even though they've run out of wine, the party hasn't found out yet, just based on some of the other lines and dialogue that people are talking back and forth. But Mary knows what's going on. She has the inside scoop. And in my opinion, I think Mary plays the Jewish mother very well here. You may or may not know Jewish mothers. They, uh, they tend to think that their son is God and can do anything, right? I don't know how many Jewish mothers you know. That's typically the personality. So they have no more wine. Jesus gets there, and Mary just goes right up there and says, they have no more wine. She's from New York, by the way. And Jesus' response is what? He says, dear woman, like, what does that have to do with me? It's essentially Jesus saying, mom, this is not my problem. Only he doesn't say mom. He could have said mother, but it's almost like if you're, I don't know, getting impatient with your own mother, if you're allowed to do that in your house, it's almost like calling your mom ma'am. Like, ma'am, this is not my problem. And here's the thing. I don't even think that Mary was expecting Jesus to do a miracle. I think she just thought, my son's here. He can do anything. He can solve this problem, surely. Don't know how he's going to do it, but he's going to do it. Jesus pretty much says, okay, what do you want me to do about it? This just is not my problem. None of my concern. I did not create the situation. But then he clarifies. He says, my time has not yet come. Now is not the right time to reveal that I am the Son of God. There's a plan. There's a, there's a timeline. This has to go in a certain way. And here's what I love. I think it's hilarious. His mom ignores him. Mary just ignores the Son of God who gave a really, really good reason why he's not revealing himself. You can just see her just kind of walking away, just kind of shooing him, just talking to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Which actually, by the way, this is not the point of this passage, not the even point of this sermon, but by the way, do whatever he tells you, not bad spiritual advice, right? We could all live very happy, faithful lives just obeying that, do whatever he tells you. But again, not the point of this sermon, another time. And then this is what Jesus does. Jesus performs a private miracle. This was not a public miracle. This was not a miracle designed to bring attention on himself or his divinity or his mission on earth. Jesus does more of this in other gospels, especially early on when he's just kind of starting his ministry. It's not uncommon for him to read like, okay, he heals a blind person. He heals a guy who can't walk but can walk now. Uh, it's not uncommon for Jesus to say, now don't tell anyone what's happened here. Which is funny because they always just go away blabbing and telling everyone they know. But this is a moment where Jesus says, like, this is not for everyone to know. This is, like, I'm just solving a problem. Only not just solving a problem. Here's what I like. I like a few things about this passage. And I really put this together this last week in studying for this. There's nothing amazing or special about how the water is turned into wine. In fact, if you read the passage again, it's really unclear when does this water become wine at all. All we know is that from the journey from the servants filling up these, these huge uh, water pots, about 20, 30 gallons apiece, they were just there to wash your hands, by the way. That was their job. Somehow from taking a cup of that water and going to the head waiter, the MC, somehow it became wine. You know, there's no magic words, there's no abracadabra moment, there's nothing showy about Jesus performing this miracle. It just happens. 
I want to bring up a few truths or a few things that we can pay attention to and take home with us just out of this passage. It's not the bottom line, it's not the big thing, but in any given passage, yeah, there's generally a major concept or truth to get out, but, uh, you know, Scripture is deep and there's any number of things that we can notice that would benefit us spiritually. So here's one thing. Jesus could have allowed this couple to face shame. They would have deserved it, they would have had it coming. Well, maybe not shame, but I'll say this they would have been responsible for making sure wine was there and there wasn't. So bride and groom, they dropped the ball. But instead of Jesus allowing this couple on the best day of their lives, best week of their lives to face shame, instead they were honored. Not one bit of credit went to Jesus, unless you were one of the disciples or the servants who just happened to know where this wine came from. And here's another thing. It's a small detail, but it's a detail. Jesus could have turned it into just average wine. But you know he made it into the best, right? The guy even says that when he goes uh, to the head waiter, the MC, he's like, this is the best wine likely that he's ever tasted. So it looks like Jesus went above and beyond in his blessing and in his honor of the people involved in this. Jesus goes overboard. And that much is a truth that we see in other places. You may have experienced this in your life, just blessings. Jesus hasn't just blessed you. He's gone overboard. Some of you can say that confidently now. Get this. uh, uh, Back in November, I think that's the last time I preached up here as part of the Sharing Jesus series. And we were talking about a point, just kind of how to pray and how prayers can work. And, you know, does anxiety have any place with prayer and how to separate those? Anyway, uh, read this from Philippians 4 as far as praying, really praying. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. And that peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ. Some of us know what's that like, what that's like. Not just to know and experience peace, but peace beyond understanding. It's like our little heart, our little cup of peace is just running over. And that's from God himself. Just as in John 2, he went overboard, he goes overboard with us. Same thing, he goes overboard with grace. This is from Romans 5. Paul's writing about the nature between our sin and God's grace and kind of living that balance in life. Paul writes, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they are. It's kind of the bad news. But as people sinned more and more, get this, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Nothing more abundant than God's grace. If Jesus wanted to, we could have just enough grace. But if you read scripture, you know that the grace in God is overflowing. It's more, more, more than we need. Here's the biggie. Here's the main point of why this miracle goes on. Why does it show up in John 2? Why did John decide to include this in his list of seven miracles in his gospel? This miracle points to the reality of the kingdom of heaven. This miracle points to one day when we've passed or Jesus has come back, whichever comes first, This is the eternity with Jesus that we get to experience. It's a picture of heaven. It's just a glimpse of that. But this kingdom and our eternity in heaven is often pictured and described as a wedding. Have you guys remember this, read this? That our eternity with Jesus is going to be like one giant wedding feast? Jesus uses a number of metaphors and that's just one of them. You have to connect the dots, especially for his disciples, because scripture, the verse says, This was really for his disciples. But Jesus turning the water into wine is actually giving us, in an indirect way, a glimpse of heaven. 
And who is this for? This miracle is for the benefit of his new disciples. Uh, He pretty much starts his first week of ministry at the end of John 1, and this goes right in. Verse 11 says, This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So not only was this giving a glimpse of our future in heaven, it was also a moment for his new disciples to start believing in Jesus. Okay, this guy seems to be exactly who he says he is. All from this little miracle. Now as they go on, especially thinking about wine, wine it was just woven into the people's scriptures back then. And the disciples, one thing they were so much better at than we are is they had their Old Testament memorized. Good Jewish boys these disciples were. But here's a verse from Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Isaiah, he lived hundreds of years before the disciples did. But they likely maybe at some point would have connected the dots between this verse and what just happened with this wine. This is from Isaiah 25. In Jerusalem, the Lord of heaven's armies will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. There are scores of verses like this in the Old Testament. Pointing a day is coming when everyone will be saved, everyone will be redeemed, those who place their faith in God, faith in Jesus, and it's going to be a massive party. And it looks like we're going to be having lots of wine. Which leads me to believe there's going to be at least one more miracle where God allows Andrew to think wine is, tastes good at all. But Jesus uh, points to this as well in his teaching. This is from Matthew. Jesus makes this promise. Jesus says, and I tell you this, that many Gentiles, that's all of us in this room, Gentiles all around, will come from all over the world, from east and west, and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the feast in the kingdom of heaven. That's heaven language. Here's a little taste, a little glimpse. I don't know a whole lot about heaven. In fact, all I know about heaven is what I read in Scripture. Here's what a part of what Scripture promises about heaven. Part of that eternal heavenly kingdom means that people don't die anymore. Some of us have faced a lot of loss in the last 12 months. No more loss in heaven. Sickness and disease will not exist. Mental illness is not a thing. All those diseases are gone too. No pain, no tears, no difficulties, no crises, no tragedies. Now, just as each miracle we read about or a miracle that we hear about today or even experience ourselves, every single one of those, though there might be many reasons, every one of those gives us a glimpse into what heaven's going to be like. Anytime a miracle happens, it's one way of God saying, I'm not happy with the status quo. Things might be like this now, but here's a glimpse of how things are going to be. If you have salvation in my son Jesus. Every time a healing happens, that's what it'll be like in heaven. Every time a miraculous diagnosis comes back, just a glimpse, just a hint of heaven. And each one of these glimpses we can take to hope, hold it in our hearts, and in some way participate in ourselves. If we have our eyes open, our ears open, a willingness to see where God is working miraculous things in the world, 
and that just fills our hearts, and you know it's going to be filled up in an overflowing way. But a hope in our hearts that's telling us that's what my eternity is going to be like. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but that's a picture of the hope I'm going for. On his very last night on earth, Jesus had a simple meal with his disciples. There was wine, of course. Again, it was the table drink of the day. Had some bread. And especially if you read John's account, he gives a very, very, very long speech. But at the end of it, he says, one day, I'm going to have wine with you again. And it's going to be at the big wedding feast when he comes back. And he just says, until then, wine is not going to touch my lips. I'm saving it for our party. And that's one way that we remember today. We uh, practice communion. Hopefully you got a cup when you came in. No wine today. still just juice. Although if a miracle happens, let me know. But Jesus says, do this. This is a simple meal. But one, we always talk about the angle that Jesus says, hey, remember me in this way. And we do need to remember Jesus. But also, maybe a piece about communion that we underteach is that this is just a little glimpse, as simple and small as it might be or feel. This is just a small glimpse, a preview of the feast that we get to have in heaven. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll celebrate this way. Let's pray. Father, for the next uh, brief few minutes, we pray that you meet us in our prayer. Meet us in this time of communion. It might be when it comes to signs and miracles that we need a sense of awe or marvel or wonder instilled back in our hearts again. Maybe we need help just not being as skeptical. Or maybe we see miracles all over the place where you are uh, getting our attention, entering into our lives, and we can take that to other people. Not knowing what each heart is, has going on this morning, I just pray that we meet with your son Jesus, taking part in this meal that he instituted 2,000 years ago, and that it would be meaningful and a holy moment. But if nothing else, help us fix our hearts and eyes on Jesus alone. It's in his name. Amen. things up, uh, let me read these verses from Revelation that still paint a picture of what heaven will be like for us. 
John's writing this. He hears some angels talking. says, Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She's been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And get this. And the angel said to me, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. I have no idea how often or unoften signs of miracles show up in your life. Me personally, I think maybe I've been around miracles or I've had trusted relationships with those who have experienced one, but a true marvelous, awesome miracle, I'm not sure if I've experienced one yet. I still believe they happen. Our prayer for this series, and hopefully you'll come back next week, is that as we cover each of these uh, for the next six, seven weeks, is that yes, we would have instilled in us a sense of awe and wonder and marvel, but also that it wouldn't stop there, that we could pay attention to what the miracle, the sign is pointing to, and let that bolster our faith and put us in a position to take the hope of Jesus to the lives of other people that we know who don't have this yet. So what we'll do is we'll sing the final song and then hopefully we'll see you next week. But here again, here's the big line. Signs, miracles, they give us a glimpse of heaven. So with that truth, hang on to that. Allow it to do your spirits well and take that heart into this time of worship. Let's all stand. Thank you.